It's hard to walk on this sometimes. Yeah, but you take off the bandage and I'll have a look at it. Oh, it's weird tight on it. But if it's too tight, it could be doing a damage. Take off the shoe. Don't worry if the sock smells or that. You see, that's the trouble, John. Where would I go to that? This is Anne, who's, who's doing some work with me. Oh, yeah. Today. John, you see, stays here most of the time, and he sleeps out. He's gone away. He's not gone away, John. You probably think it's gone away because you've been drinking a bit and you don't notice it anymore. Who was out like that? Yeah, it's a bit better. It's not as sore, no, is it? No, it's not as sore now. But if you're happy with it, leave it. Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. It's Tuesday morning and Nurse Alice Leahy is on her medical rounds at the Simon Hostel for homeless people at Lower Buckingham Street, Dublin. Well now, what, what is worrying you most at the moment? The wounds, your ulcer or your fingers or the nerves? The nerves. We see, if you're drinking a lot, Bernard, yeah. this is the problem. And if you are drinking a lot, it doesn't help the nerves and it doesn't help the stomach if you have an ulcer. No, I got them taken out, but I got a knife stabbing at first. Yeah, but you still, the drink affects your stomach. Doesn't you know, it? because you don't eat properly and the lining of your stomach is, is ruined from the drink. So if you've been, you've been drinking for the last week, have you? Oh, I'm drinking for about two years. Yeah. You see, I got a kick of a horse here one time and I got a plate from the back of my head there. Yeah. Put your hand there, nurse. You see there? Oh, yeah, I feel it, yeah. You see that? Yeah. So I'm feeling very bad. I feel like a man is going to kick the bucket. That's the way I am, you know? That's how you feel. How long have you felt like that? What about the sweat from now to these hands out there, out to them fingers, like, you know? Mm. Them hands start steaming, you think, that they're boiling. But you see, if you drink a lot, yeah. you know you're bound to be sweating. How long are you going to be here for? Well, I was trying to get myself sorted out, you know? I was trying to get myself sorted out some way. Look at a room or something, you know? Trying to get some sort of out somewhere, you know. But you see, getting a room, you're still going to have the same problems, Bernard. Yeah. You still have to ask yourself why, uh, you know, why are the nerves bad? And that going into a room isn't going to make any great difference at the moment until you get this sorted out. To what extent uh, is the medical condition of the of a lot of the homeless people that you're brought in contact with exacerbated by the state of their living conditions? Well. The, the living conditions certainly don't help, but one of the real problems with the people we work with is they have such a low, a poor image of themselves. They have no idea of how to look after the, their bodies or uh, take uh, some responsibility for their own health. They've gone past caring. And uh, I think this is a real problem. And certainly part of our work around the hostels would be to try and encourage the staff in the hostels to look after their own health because very often they're working in appalling conditions and stressful conditions and sometimes they don't even get time themselves to eat properly. But the state of health of a lot of people is certainly, I mean, a lot would have chest conditions. There's great difficulty getting, I want to ask you, Jerry, about him, one particular man. There's great difficulty getting people, for instance, who've had TB to go back and have regular checks. There are people who have constant chest infections there are people with skin conditions. Now, we would take people up from the different hostels and, and from here we would make arrangements to take the more difficult people up who won't maybe go along with the staff here and have a bath and have their skin treated. For instance, people, people who move from hostel to hostel very often get loused up and as a result they need to be deloused and have their skin treated. I mean, there's nothing dramatic uh, about that. I mean, some people scream and shout if they hear uh, of lice, 
but I mean it's an everyday fact of life we're dealing with it and um, we've never picked up anything because I think if you look after yourself you don't but I mean we just get rid of people's clothes and get them into the bath and um, get their skin treated and generally they're okay but then the difficulty is they move on someplace else and it starts all over again uh, so it's an ongoing problem. If you think of the permanent population within the house quite a few of them drink quite heavily obviously if they're drinking they tend to lose control of themselves and lose responsibility for themselves to some extent, which I think a lot of people would when drunk, obviously. But um, it can be amazing to see the same people who one would see on the street and think of as drunk and dirty or whatever, and see them within a day or two when they stayed in and they're off the booze. can be absolutely perfect gentlemen, extremely clean, quite hygienic about themselves, about their rooms, etc. Those human arrangements that I was mentioning earlier on the wall there, if you want to take note of them. Yeah, actually Maggie Ward mentioned it to me when we were coming in because she was just saying how uh, it was interesting because she wanted to chat about Eileen and uh, and that because they used to come up to us together and Eileen used to always come up to us for boots and we used to keep her woolly boots and uh, uh, that's sad but Maggie mentioned it uh, but I, I won't be able to go or not to be able to go because I've arranged made for tomorrow morning unfortunately. Alice, was that the lady that died of exposure? Well, I mean, I don't know if she died from exposure or not. All I do know is that the woman was uh, found dead, and she is a woman we had both worked with. In fact, I knew her for years and years, uh, going way back to when she was sleeping rough, and then she went to Simon, and we had regular contact with her. But the but circumstances the of her death were sad? Oh, yeah, they were sad, and she was, I mean, she was one of three people in the last week, three women we've had dealings with uh, who were homeless, all different age groups, and all in the one week died. So it's difficult. Over 10 years ago, Alice Leahy founded the Trust Organisation, which was to care for the medical and social needs of the homeless. Its philosophy is based on two central principles. The recognition of every individual's right to be treated as autonomous and a human, and the need to restore the dignity of individuals whom society has labelled deviant and undesirable. Here Alice Leahy addresses a group of nurses from on board Alternish. Have any of you ever thought that you might be homeless? No. Well, any one of us could go out the door this minute and be knocked down by a car, end up with brain damage. Nobody wants to know you afterwards. And we all have lots of friends when we have a job, when we have money, when we can socialise. I found when I gave up a secure job in a hospital, the friends I had or the so-called friends, didn't want to even associate with me. So what must it be like if you are really homeless? Now, I've come across doctors, nurses, solicitors, priests and nuns, and all are homeless for their own reasons. They come from all over the place. Um, some of the people would come from a city, a city complex of flats that the planners decided to demolish in good faith and plan something else so they've all been uprooted and where do those people go I mean what right have any of us uh, to say to somebody who has lived all their life in the inner city you must go out to Ballymun or you must go out to Tella um, just again it, it's an example of planning so a, lot, a number of people would be people like that a number of people are people who have worked in England all of their lives and want to come back to Ireland this is quite common with the older people. They want to come back to Ireland to die. And when they come back, they find Ireland isn't the Ireland it was years ago. Their friends have all gone. 
The city is a cold, violent city. <coughs> the buildings they lived in are now demolished for a motorway and nobody even heard of them. There are people who come from rural areas, people who have men particularly, and I mean, it, it may sound as if I'm just talking about men, I'm talking about men and women, but most of the people we work with are men. Um, because I think women somehow are better able to cope in a, in, a, in a flat situation, or they've been able to. And the women we meet would be much, much worse than the men. They've, they've had so many problems. Uh, men who lived with a mother, maybe, me and the mother died. Also, people who've worked as housekeepers, and housekeepers, as we all know, are very badly paid and continue to be. And when the owner of the house dies, the family decide to squabble over who's going to get the, the building and the poor housekeeper is out on her ear. And that kind of woman, I think it's tragic when they end up being homeless because they've given years of service, um, usually for a pittance, usually very loyal to their employer, and suddenly they're, they're on the pile. And these women are, women are usually the most a quite depressing group because they've been used to a better standard of living. And suddenly they're in a hostel where everybody, where they're wondering what on earth is going on around the place. Also, you have priests and nuns. For instance, if you leave the church, I mean, we claim to have a caring church. And if you leave the church, you do not get the support of your order. If you leave any institution, but particularly the church. And um, the only place where you can just survive is probably in a hostel, maybe using a different name and try and get the pieces together. And again, it, it says a lot for the type of society we're living in. Another institution, and you will see that most of the people, there's an institutional thing all along the way, so why now suddenly put them into a room? Men who've been in the army, either the British Army or the Irish Army, and in the army, as you know, you can drink, you have no problem with your rent, you have no problem with your laundry, you have no problem with your meals, and suddenly it's time for you to leave the army, and you're single, you can't cope. You can't even think of paying rent, you can't even think of boiling a kettle, and you end up in a hostel, and that would be a large number of people. And um, There are people who are living in flats and absolutely terrified and move into a hostel for some type of security. There are all kinds of people, and, and certainly the um, people very much on the margin, like long-stay psychiatric patients and people who will be discharged and indeed are being discharged from psychiatric institutions. I was walking and then uh, I got redundant. So uh, corporation, Dublin Corporation, watchman I was. And uh, the hostel was very good like that time away. It was a uh, low price and it went up as things went up like, you know, economy. It was everything. Well, I actually first came from England. I, I came back last March, 12 months. And, uh, I've been only got to know her through, uh, through getting me a doctor and that, and uh, I find her very good. Like she's been. What were you doing in England? Uh, I used to uh, work on the buildings at one time, and uh, I was in hospital actually in England as well uh, for the same complaint. I had uh, what they call coronary disease in the stomach, you know, and. Uh, I'd, I'd already been six months in hospital in London as well, and I came home actually through my health, you know. And uh, since then, I've been stopping in the hospital up here. 
Have you any family or contacts or children or anything no. like that? I've got no family or uh, contacts with uh, anyone, so uh, Alice is more or less the only one I, I know, like, and, uh, I'm down here because of that. Uh, to I'm Tom. Tom is my name. I'm from Leitrim. And uh, I came here about 10 years ago. I came from Birmingham. Is that loud enough? That's lovely. I came over from Birmingham and uh, I was advised in Birmingham to leave Birmingham to get out uh, 10 years ago. Like, and um, they, they paid me fair home, the, paid me fair home to, uh, to Dublin. And I have been in Dublin since, you know, and uh, I have uh, chest trouble. I, 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 I had shadows on the lungs then from uh, working in uh, uh, nuclear, nuclear uh, waste uh, plants in England. And uh, I have been in Dublin ever since. And um, I'm, uh, I suffer from depression and nerves and an, an unknown fear. Or near the best part of my life, you know, and I don't associate with any people or anyone. I always keep myself to myself. And, um, I uh, I was in the army for a while, and I had uh, uh, I left the army, and I was in Sligo Mental Hospital, and I had electric uh, treatment there, which I don't think done me any good, you know because uh, I felt worse when I came out uh, after having the electric treatment. And I think it has done something to me, to me brain and to me inner mind, you know. And uh, I'm uh, not, well, you know, like not 100%, you know, like yet, you know. Uh, I, I still, like, suffer from nerves and depression, you know, like... And, uh, I'm not working, but I'd, I'd like to be working because when I'm working, I'd, I'd feel, I feel better like when I'm working. Like I have worked for over 20 years on and off, you know, like, and uh, done some very, very hard work in England and here. But I'd rather be working like than hanging about like and drawing the money. I, get, I, I have an awful uh, f feeling of going into the labour exchange before I draw the money, you know. I, I do have an awful weird feeling comes over me, you know. And, uh, Hi. Well, I imagine that they're all, like, again, it's part of me nerves and me uh, post, I suppose, depression. I, I, I fear the people is plotting always against me and um, that, they're, that they're going to um, do something, you know, uh, unexpected, you know, like, and uh, I don't trust any of the crowds hanging around the Labour Exchange either. I observe them as I go in the door and I... Um, I don't take much remarks, but at the same time, I watch myself like as when I'm going in there, I'm on the alert going in, and I'm on the alert coming out, you know, like, and I'm watching everything, and I'm uh, I'm gone to the stage now where I'm looking behind me. The philosophy of trust is such that it is not just the medical needs of homeless people that need to be looked after. Deirdre is a shopkeeper and is used to dealing with homeless people. She has learned the skills of communicating with people who find the things of everyday living very difficult. I have one gentleman that comes up to me every morning and his thing is that he gets three rock buns and a packet of biscuits. Now, he's very old. He just communicates with absolutely no one. He'll come into the shop 
He won't come in first of all if there's anyone in it. He'll walk up and down and sing a song. Yet that man is just as normal as what you or I are. But when he comes in, he won't even ask for what he wants. He'll just say, have you any? You know, but yet that person, like, he's just the same as a human being as anyone else. Yet he's been just, like, society is not accepting that man as what they should. Whereas now when he can go down to trust, it's just the same there. He's not a man that's an outsider. He can go in there in total confidence kind of thing and he's happy to go in. Whereas if I, if he did say something to me that oh, he wasn't feeling the best and if he had, and I'd know by him if his breathing was so bad because he is very old and he'd say, look, why don't you go to the doctor? Oh no, the people will be looking at me in the surgery. And this is the whole thing, there's no way he'd go. But yet, if you say, well, look, if you go down to Alice, he'd go off down and he'd know that there'd be no one in the office there. He could go in, he could take his time, and he's not just another number. There are a lot of very simple things you can do to make life happier for individuals. I mean, we're not talking about heart transplants or we're not talking about liver transplants, but we are actually talking about somebody who, as a result of intervention, might be able to walk from here down to the road. We met one man who didn't have his toenails cut for 20 years. And the supervisor in one of the hostels called me. He was a nice old man in his 70s, this man. And um, a number of people retired to the hostels, God forbid. Uh, but these are the only places where they feel safe. And the superintendent in the hostel said, Alice, there's something wrong with that man. I think he needs his hips done. And so he said, well, we'll see him. And when we got the man down and took off his shoes... He said, well, nurse, they're like Connemara sheep, aren't they? The toenail was just going round and round. He just hadn't had his toenails cut. They're just very simple things we lose sight of. The first man we met when we were working with people who were homeless was staying in one of the hostels, and people complained because he went to the toilet standing up and didn't clean up after himself. But nobody bothered to look. He had crutches. The man couldn't sit on the toilet. The man couldn't bend. Now, he was attending a local health centre, and he was getting medication for his arthritis. He was getting medication for sleep. You name it, he was getting it. Of course, he wasn't getting vitamins or anything uh, as simple as that. But he was getting all the medication. But nobody bothered to take off his shoes. Now, when we took off his shoes, his socks were stuck to the sole of his feet and the skin came off. Now, surely that says a lot about our health services. If we're so busy writing reports having case conferences, and we can't see those very basic needs. And Alice Leahy and the other members of Trust would not necessarily make it their business to house a person who is sleeping rough. On a construction site in North County Dublin, we visited one man who was living in a shed of his own making. Uh, it was a neighbour first put us in contact uh, with this man. And of course, I think it's the neighbours and local communities at the end of the day help the people we're talking about you know it's not the people we just read about every so often on the paper it's the, the genuine concern of, of the ordinary people and this woman lives up the road and Tom goes down there at all hours of the day or night and he gets water in the pump down there anyway he was getting no money he did casual work for years he's from the midwest did casual work and then stopped because work wasn't available. And of course, he was signing on the labour for ages. But as you know, the farms are so complicated now that he found it difficult. And it is extremely difficult. So he decided he just wouldn't look for any money. He was getting no money for ages and ages. And this woman was very concerned. And she rang, in fact, she rang up um, 
another organisation and they contacted us and we came out and um, we saw the men. So we got on to the health board and they gave him supplementary welfare allowance straight away and uh, pending uh, a fairly steady income. So he, at first of course, he, he was so proud and so, so honest, like so many of the people we work with, and he just didn't want money for nothing. So we had to explain to him, this isn't charity, you are in fact entitled to it. And I told a little white lie by saying, well this in fact is your labour money in a different form. And eventually he decided to accept the money. So when he got the money, he was at least able to buy things for himself again. And uh, he, buys, he buys very sensibly, he buys cheese, he doesn't drink, he drinks orange juice and lemonade. And uh, you could see the fact of just getting money that he was able to take an interest in himself again. And years were knocked off his life. He visits the local health centre, as I said, every week and we're sure that things are okay. Uh, last year in the snow, the neighbour rang us to say that um, he had fallen and if we could come out. Uh, so we came out and in fact he was, he was grand. Mind then, you don't fall because this is wicked. Um, um, I suppose this is a classical example of the two worlds we're living in. On the one hand we have these huge machines and uh, no grass growing because it's all rooted up and in the middle. That's the house now up there. Oh God, Alice, look at that, it's terrible. Maybe you put, maybe, you put rub it off the old grass there, Alice. Uh, we'll try and, and see through this minute. But what should I be complaining about? I can go home and change. Yeah. God, you've been well tied up. You have it securely tied up there. Any mice now, Sean? You don't have frightened I am in the mice. <laughs> I always bring I always bring a man here with me because I'm not afraid of men playing with mice. No, we want to watch that, Sean, because I don't want the end to fall now. I have my rubber. I will Alice give me her rubber, Sean. You have a lovely fire. Oh, there's a grand fire down oh, there. Oh, it's only a bit that's gone out, you know. Yeah, I, oh, you're grand. You're well organised. Had your cup of tea now this morning. Yeah. You had, and you have your food hanging up around there. Are the mice gone? <laughs> moist. It's moist in it yet. Are they? Moist at the least, What does he say? He's not afraid of the mice. You get to like them. Moist. Anyway, Sean, you're well and you're eating. Oh, and no, 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 no. Don't you see me out here? And how's the woman down the road to get the water from me? Is she well? Well, she's all right, she's, she's all good. right. She's now, right. And you know the promise you kept to us that if you were ever left here that you'd come and let us know? Yeah, yeah, or yeah, I will, her, so I will Or too. you'd let her know too. So yeah, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll give you a call if I'm there, if I, <laughs> yeah. get, if I buy a house. You, you haven't been into us now for a while? Huh? You haven't been into us for a while? I have, no. Yeah. Now, Paddy brought you I out a coast in, there. I wasn't in town, you know, the school was Yeah, yeah. Paddy? Yeah, you I brought petty. you a heavy coat. Oh, of course, you bring your own heavy coat. No, it's a good so, heavy, it's no your Jesus type of coat. Christ, In fact, it's a good heavy one, and we're not bringing it back with us through the puddle there. What shall I... It's hard enough to get back ourselves. Well, what price is this coat? Well, someday you're coming in, you can bring in Paddy a packet of cigarettes. Oh, Paddy. We wouldn't take cigarette. money from you. Paddy, you said, yeah, it's for a coat. 
but it's a good warm one now. And we are, you know the bottle of vitamins I gave you? Yeah. Did you take that? I did. Yeah. Well, I brought you out another bottle of oh, the Oh, no, sure, I Probably got that's an awful waste. You couldn't carry that. <laughs> well, we're not oh, carrying it back. Yeah. See, that's a grand coat. Oh, but it's too heavy. It's far too heavy. Oh. It's fast too. What does it do you for a blanket? It'll do, twin. Oh, what does it do for a blanket? But it's too heavy. It's so too heavy to wear, you know. It's an awful weight. It's a half a hundred weight. Jeez. Well, we're not bringing it back now. Well, you're not bringing it back. No. You're not telling your back. No, you keep it as a blanket now. I wear it as a coat. Well, listen to it's me. It's a good heavy a one for the snow. I know, but, but listen to me for a minute now. Go for that side. Do you see the gap there? The gap there, Step. yes. Oh, turn left. On the left again, and on the left again, there's another gap. You see, you get out on the road, you make the road, you know, Great. quietly. Anything would be better than the way we Anything would <laughs> be better than plowing. Now, be careful of the plowing. Now, he survived in the bad snow, and we were all worried, and uh, I rang the local guards to keep an eye on him and uh, to ring me back if there was any problem. So I felt sure that, that at least they knew where he was, and they would, and also the neighbour. But... Um, you see, he, as you can see, he is well used to, to roughing it, the way he dresses. He has all his food there in plastic bags. In fact, he's none of the luxuries of our society, but he is used to living rough. And he, is, he has great survival instincts. And a lot of the people who are like him um, will survive. Now, I would be more worried about some of the people very near us at work living in flats where they have no heating, where they are skimping to try and make ends meet, where they are afraid to spend money on extra warm underwear, long johns or the old-fashioned knickers or whatever, because they're saving money for their funeral. And I think he is free of all of that, and so are a lot of the real homeless people. They have none of those... Um, burdens. So I, w I wouldn't be concerned about him at all this coming winter. When I say I wouldn't be concerned about him, no, that isn't true, but he is the one I feel will be better able to cope than most of the people who are in fact living in rooms. Alice Leahy through the years has learned to accept the many problems that a homeless person faces and their need just to be accepted as they are. But for some, it remains a real difficulty, like one woman I spoke to whose brother became homeless. I have a brother who is a schizophrenic and is also an alcoholic. And I suppose we came from a very caring family and as time went on, this problem just got so big that we just weren't able to cope at home and he just became homeless. But still the care was there for him and wanting to help him still further but just f feeling so limited. And then at the, I suppose the light at the end of the tunnel was trust knowing that trust was there and that he was able to go there and still retain his bit of dignity and be able to wash and knowing that there were people there that cared and could recognise limitations and accept him for what he was. He is still belonging to a family, you know, he's somebody's rearings and unfortunately there are many, many people like him mm. and um, I mean, you know, naturally You just don't stop and sort of say, you know, they're no longer a part of you just because this sickness it becomes an obvious thing. Is it difficult as a family to kind of come to terms with it? And once you've come to terms with it, it's easier then to cope? Well, yes, of course it is. Yes, um, that, that is a fact, all right. Um, Recognising them again, 
for their limitations and letting them be themselves. This is the whole thing. Like, at what stage did you notice that he was going in a different road? Well, he just couldn't hold on jobs and he became a drifter and staying out at night and uh, just wasn't able to relate at all. He wasn't able to relate to family life at all. And um, just wanted to sort of do his own thing and this was causing great, um, great um, disharmony in a family because rules and regulations meant nothing, nothing to him. I know every time I go to get into my bed at night, I think of him and wonder where he is. And you're going along the streets and he can crop up or, you know, going around a corner, there he might be sitting on a pavement with a bottle and you say, my God, I mean, you know, what has he done to deserve this? You know, how, why should I be a little more fortunate? Father Philip Kelly is a curate in Mead Street Parish, as with the members of Trust. For him, homelessness is not simply the lack of a roof over your head. I suppose the, the first thing that I'd see about them is their, their complete isolation in themselves. That um, they don't even appear to have friends among each other. I see them every day coming into the Little Flower Penny Dinners and they don't even talk to themselves. At one time we tried to get the penny dinners to look a bit like and feel a bit like as if they were coming into a restaurant to have their meal. But they, they didn't want it that way. They all take their meal and go over to their own special corner and even face away from each other. And it's the isolation, the sense of isolation that they have nobody, nobody who cares for them. And they don't feel any kind of need or have lost the need within themselves even to communicate at a very basic level with people. It seems like that. But I think they have got the need. It's just that they can't com communicate that need or th there's nobody there that they can communicate the need to. There's nobody for them. And I don't know how they got that way, but uh, th there seems to be nobody there that, that they can communicate that way with. On a permanent basis, there are people like Alice, whom you know, that they do communicate with very, very well. But um, with ordinary people, they can't. With people who don't understand their situation, who just look down on them and see them as down and outs, who would prefer to get drunk, um, who are layabouts or whatever, who just don't want to work, just don't want to take on responsibility. Um, they can't communicate with people like that. And of course, the solution to their problem is not, as many people might argue, is putting a roof over their head, giving them a bath and uh, telling them to, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps. No. Uh, most of the people whom I would know, what they need is a home somewhere, somewhere or some it's people more than anything else. Uh, it's a home because a house is not a home. And what, the, what they need is to 
be with others who will uh, care for them and they'll lean on those people but they need giving them house can mean that they become even more isolated because they don't even have the companionship or maybe it's not even companionship people around them people who will watch them and see that their um, health is looked after see that they're cared for in some way see that they're fed and so on um, give them put them into a house put them into a flat someplace and they become even more isolated and more into themselves and they're in greater danger I would say in a situation like that what they need is a home not a house from your experience in the last number of years what kind of vulnerabilities do you think they're exposed to as the economic reality around them bites deeper mm-hmm. I think they're pretty vulnerable to number one drink which is their biggest drug, drug. and they use it as a drug to for forgetfulness for um, getting away from worry and um, thinking about the future and so on worrying about the future they're vulnerable to that they're vulnerable to other drugs as well um, just uh, they're like any oh, person who is trying to escape reality who is trying to escape from responsibility that they can't cope with they will turn to drugs if they get them uh, they're vulnerable to uh, being exploited for money. Um, they need money to feed their habits, whatever the habits they might have, usually it's drink. But they need money to feed that. They can get that money through uh, one particular uh, exploitation uh, at the moment, and that is through offering their bodies as guinea pigs for drug testing and um, they can get quite a lot of money for that which will keep them going not for very long because they just go into excess when they get excessive money all of one shot as they do for the drug testing they'll spend it uh, while they have it or lose it which is almost just as bad and um, you know anybody who will spend a night and a very cold frosty night with a coat around him out in the open rather than pay 50p 50 pence from uh, less for drink and go into a night shelter for the night, the back lane, I think it's 50 pence or 60 pence at the moment. They don't worry about their health. They wouldn't lie out there all night if they worried about their health. So their health isn't a, isn't a basic consideration for them at all. And when they go to be used as guinea pigs, then all they see is the money at the end of it.
so little to do for so much money. I spend most of my day. I just sit in the ivy and I go out and I go out drinking at night. That's, that's what I do. I don't come in the all hours. I usually sit in during the daytime to recover from the the effects of the night before, and it takes an awful long time to recover, you know, because I've a terrible lot of headaches and. And I'm always sick the whole time, so I am after a night's drinking. So I usually just sit in the hospital and know to recover from the effects of it. It me with a terrible hangover and makes me feel sick and everything. I'm always sick the whole time. So usually when I sit in during the day, I'm recovered and ready to go out at night again. That's just it. And repeat the uh, yeah. punishment. Yeah. Where would you... Where well, it is punishment, put it like that there. Where would you normally spend most of the time at night? Because it's not exactly very warm at the moment. Well, I don't really know, because I'd be usually drunk, you know. I get an awful lot of, I get an awful lot of wine in me, you know. I don't know what I'm doing. I just can't, I don't remember. I don't, I don't feel the cold or anything. I get wine in me, you know, and I, I don't feel anything, you know. I don't, don't even know where I am or where I'm going. And like, once I get the drink in me, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel the cold or anything, which is true. I don't feel the cold once I get the wine. I mean, I don't feel cold at all. But it means you could you could it be lying at the side of the road. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It, lying on the side of the road. It doesn't matter how cold it is. Once I get the drink in me, I don't feel anything. I don't even know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. This is every night. It sort of way gives me courage, you know. How did it all start? You know, the heavy drinking. Depression. I'm just deprived. I vote my whole time to it, you know, because I'm I drink, you know, I devote my whole time to it. I get about everything, you know, I concentrate on it the whole time. Nothing else matters to me. So at one level it's kind of almost therapeutic. It it helps you because you forget the yeah. things that you don't want to think about. Yeah, that's correct. And makes me very happy. Drink, drink wine makes me very happy, so it does. I feel I get an awful thrill out of it, so it. Once I get it in me, more, but I feel it the next morning, but at night time, I don't feel it, just makes me very happy. I mean, you're a young man. Um, where do you see it all ending? I don't know. <laughs>